Good morning. Welcome to Women in the Word. So good to be here. I'm Lynn Kitchens, happy to be part of the teaching team and be looking through the book of Exodus. And so today we're going to continue looking at the plagues in Egypt. And I thought, you know, Amy did such a great job. I'm just going to reuse her outline and just change the names of the plagues. Um, although the plagues she described were yucky and the plagues I'm going to describe are scary. So uh, I couldn't do that. But the purpose of the plagues remain the same throughout all of them. The people of Egypt who worshipped multitudes of gods needed to learn about the one true God and the people of Israel who were just now becoming a nation under God with the redemption from slavery about to happen, they needed to learn more about God as well. And so here's what I thought was amazing about that. 3,000 years later, the unbelieving world still doesn't understand the realities of God. And even those of us who believe in God we know that we have to be diligent to study to really know who he really is and his true identity. So God is great and God is good, but there are many people who don't know that. There are many Christians who forget that. The Egyptians had a choice, believe in the one true God or not. The Israelites had a choice, put your trust and faith in the God of your fathers or not. The world today has the same choice, believe and align our lives with a great and a good God or not. We can choose to believe God is who he says he is or we can be plagued living life apart from him. Egypt experienced the plagues literally. So who did God say he was to the Egyptians? First we know God is great because of the words that he spoke to the Egyptians during the plagues. Grab your outline. I'm gonna read those quotes. Would have been good if I had this out. He said to Egypt, you shall know that I am the Lord. I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. There is none like me in all the earth. I have raised you up to show you my power. The power of God is referring to his might. The greatness of God is about God's power. Look on your verse sheet at First Chronicles. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that's in the heavens and all that's on the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. So when God spoke these words to the Egyptians during the plagues, he was speaking to a nation about his power, a nation that believed in powerless gods. In fact, I read this interesting thing. The priests of these false gods really controlled the minds and the hearts of the people in Egypt. And they would actually go to the temple every day. They found this through historical records. A priest would go into the Holy of Holies. And they would come in, the door would be bolted shut, they'd go in, they'd bolt it back shut. And supposedly, inside this little holy of holies, one of the gods had crept off of their shrine and slept in the room that night. 
So the priest would come in, find which God will be asleep today. And then he would wake the God up and he would have clothes with him and headdresses and bands and belts and he would dress the God. And then he would seat the God down for his first meal, which the priest would have brought with him. The priest would feed the God throughout the day. At the end of the day, it was time for the God to get back in his shrine. The priest would undress him. The God would go to his shrine. Okay, while all this is going on throughout the day, the Egyptians that were worshiping would be outside the Holy of Holies, dancing and singing hymns to the gods. So my thought was, if anyone could have peeked into the Holy of Holies, they would have seen a priest dancing to the music outside, having a great time eating everything he wanted throughout the day, taking naps throughout the day, and then coming back out as if he had just been <laughs> with a God. Pretty sad. So I wanted to give you a quick idea of some of the false gods. So we've got a, um, some slides. And I know you've seen some of them, but here's a picture of just a few of them. You notice they often have strange things on their heads. They have weird faces. Um, here's another one. Um, let me tell you something. You know how many of these slides? Let, look on the left first. I want you to get a good picture of. Uh, this is their favorite god, Ra, the sun god, with the big sun on his head. I'm going to talk about him in a little bit. But let me tell you this, you know how many slides I would have to put up there to show all the gods of Egypt? You know how many there were? 2,000. 2,000 of these gods in Egypt. Gives us some insight into just how lost they really were. They believed in gods of the river, the desert, the sun, the sky, the wind, but all those things are what God created. And since he's the creator, only God has the power to direct his creation. And that's why he chose these natural disorders to take place in Egypt, because he was exposing the fact that their gods, their gods of the wind and the sun, were powerless before the one true God. So each plague was a judgment from God, mocking their specific false gods. And this went on for at least half a year, maybe nine months in the land of Egypt. You didn't want to go take a vacation to Egypt that year. Just go anywhere else. Half a year, God was demonstrating his greatness and the powerlessness of the 2,000 gods of Egypt. Through God's words and actions, he proved he's the one true God. So how did God describe himself to the Israelites before the plagues? His amazing words to them pointed out the fact, not only is God great, God is good. Look at what he said to them on the front of your outline. He said, I'm the Lord. I'll bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. God speaks these words that encourage the hearts of Israel with his promises to them. Promises of love. I'm going to get rid of your burdens. I'm going to redeem you from slavery. 
I'm going to deliver you. I am going to show great acts of judgment against your oppressors, but you will be safe. You will not be ruined. Through God's words and actions, he proved he's a loving father. And think about it. Wouldn't it be worse beyond belief if God was a great God, but not a good God? If he had all the power in the whole universe, but he was unloving and uncaring. Scripture tells us that's not true. God is love. Look at 1 John 4. Anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loves us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. As he pours his love out on Israel, he pours his love out on us. He takes our burdens. He wants our burdens. He delivered us from the slavery of sin. He redeems us for himself. So God lets man know with his words and actions, he is great and he is good. And now Pharaoh would need to decide if he believed it. And you and I already know the choice he made. Listen to this quote. When Pharaoh, knowing that he was now face to face with the demands of the great God of nature, he resented and resisted God's claims. And so the plagues exposed in the realm of nature the horror and the awfulness of sin. The plagues of judgment, which you'll see get harder and more destructive with each one, made the devastation of sin visible to everyone. The scars that we see on the earth today, a lot of them are due to the enormous crimes of human beings on the earth. I think our sins send their vibrations throughout all creation. We get to see it in these plagues. Listen to what Jeremiah said later on. How long will the land lie parched and the grass in every field be withered? It's because those who live in it are wicked. The animals and birds have perished. Moreover, the people are saying he won't see what happens to us. The plagues of judgment, um, which were hard, showed sin what it was. So I want to look at the choices that Pharaoh made when he was presented with the realities of who God is and the choices we might make as well. So let's look at Exodus 9, the fifth plague when the death of livestock happens. The Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and of Egypt's, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time. Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. 
All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Okay, before we move on and talk about this fifth plague, I want to remind us real quickly about the yucky plagues we looked at last week. Seven days of blood in the Nile, frogs, gnats, and flies. So you can imagine the decaying frogs, their bodies, the germs, and the insects carrying those germs out. And it may have been a way that God chose to have diseases come to the livestock, possibly even anthrax. This probably would have been in about January because that's when they would take the livestock into the fields because the Nile River would reside. Um, it seems that this disease only affected those animals in the field because you read in the later plagues that more animals are involved. So this, in that verse, God mentions these were the animals in the field. Economic catastrophe for Egypt. Animals worked. Animals were food, animals were used for travel, but it was also a spiritual catastrophe because the cows and the bulls were sacred. They needed cows and bulls for worship. This was a slap in the face for the uh, Hathor, the cow-headed goddess of motherhood, the bull god Apis, and the ram god Noom. God warned Pharaoh, he gave him a specific time, tomorrow it will happen, and this would be the first time personal property would be targeted. God reminds Pharaoh of who belongs to him in what I just read. He says, you know, you're Hebrew slaves, those are my people. Nothing's going to die that belongs to them. Later, as Pharaoh stood in the fields himself and he's mortified and he's listening to the moaning of the animals. He's looking at them dropping. He's seeing the growing mounds of dead bodies. In his ears are God's words ringing. Nothing that belongs to Israel will die. And as he's looking out at death on his fields, he grabs one of his servants and says, Go to Goshen and look on their fields. And I would not have wanted to be one of those slaves or servants right there. Because they go and they look. And as they're looking, they see the animals calmly grazing and the people of Goshen going about their day. And they have to go back and tell Pharaoh. And when they tell him, well, the horses were running, the cows were mooing, the lambs were leaping... Pharaoh, who has a choice right here, hardens his heart to this incredible miracle. When Pharaoh investigated the power of God, he chose to ignore what was true. Who would do that? Let's look at Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. This was true for us before we knew the Lord. 
This is true for everyone who's lost and their eyes have not been opened to the realities of God. This is the awful state of people who look at fields of devastation and fields of blessing, but never look at who's in control of both of those. These are lost people that have chosen to believe what they want to believe and they live accordingly. Here's the truth. Pharaoh could not acknowledge the Hebrew God without setting his pride aside because he would have been admitting, my belief in my gods is wrong. They're powerless and actually I'm not a God. Would have been really hard for Pharaoh to do, would have been the right thing to do. Instead, he hardens his heart. Choosing to ignore the realities of God binds us to false beliefs. Look what Romans 1 says. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God. They didn't give thanks to God. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. When we set aside God's truths, we are vulnerable to lies. When you set aside God's truth, this is true for the Christian as well as the non-Christian. We become vulnerable to lies. Okay, plague six, boils on man and beast. Look at verse eight. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the, soot from the kiln, let Moses throw it in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and threw it in the air. It became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians couldn't even stand before Moses because of the boils. The boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. He did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Okay, this plague is not announced to Pharaoh, but it's done right in front of Pharaoh. It's done with him watching, with his eyes looking. And this would have been a loathsome, loathsome thing to witness, to see open sores on people and on beasts. You know, the Egyptians were always fearful of epidemics and disease, so they had the God of medicine, the God of disease, the God of healing. Those gods were once again silent. This is the first plague that endangered human life. So how did the boils get there? God probably used a furnace that had been baking the bricks of the labor of the Israel slaves. It would symbolize their oppression. Day in, day out, Israel sweated and worked, gathering straw and baking and building bricks for the Egyptians, and they did this under the heavy hand of the taskmasters. So I think Moses and Aaron symbolically reached in a kiln, grabbed some of that soot, threw it as high in the air toward heaven as they could, and Pharaoh watched it. And he watched it, and he watched it, and he watched it fall to the ground. And when he looked up, everything had changed. The oppression that was once on Israel was now on Egypt. They would feel the pain of oppression 
with sores and boils on their body. And I think those sores were probably very similar to the sores of the Hebrews that were beaten and whipped by the Egyptian taskmasters. Pharaoh needed his security blanket, so he turns once again to the magicians, thinking that they can invalidate this miracle, they can, he can find comfort in them. They can't even come and stand before him because they have boils all over their body. They cannot heal because they are sick themselves. Pharaoh has no gods who will help him. He has no magicians who can help him. When Pharaoh relied on his magicians, he was asking for help from the helpless. And because of that, he remained in anguish. And I think for us today, choosing to depend on powerless things in life instead of God leaves us in anguish too. It's so easy when I'm faced in pain, when maybe you're faced in pain, to come up with our own kind of useless, magical <laughs> plans that we think's gonna take the pain away, and we want them to stand before us and work out their magic, things like other people, money, lies, substances. They all prove powerless. They can't stand before us and help us just like the magicians couldn't so here now it says God hardened the hearts of Pharaoh it's his judgment on Pharaoh we've talked a lot about this God can choose to harden the heart in judgment of someone who has continually rejected and rebelled against God okay plague seven hail on man beasts and plants Okay, I want to let you know, this seventh plague marks a new chapter in God's dealings with Egypt. They become very, very severe. Listen to this um, that I read. Man had come into collision with divine power, and what was intended for instruction and illumination would now become punitive and destructive. Pharaoh had been raised up to learn God's power. Enough had been done to make him acquainted with it, but he had misused the opportunity. He turned God's goodness into an opportunity for hardening resistance. The result was Pharaoh became a sign that if a man will not bend, he must break. That's what's about to happen. We're going to pick up the, sto the story where Moses had once again appealed to Pharaoh to release God's people. And now God speaks to Pharaoh in a deeper way, in a more detailed way about the next plague. So look at 9.14. For this time, God says, I will send all my plagues on you and yourself and on your servants and people so you may know there's none like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. You would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I've raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You're still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I'll cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send... Get your livestock, all you have in the field, into safe shelter. 
For every man and beast that's in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever didn't pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Okay, do you notice what does God call the plagues? His plagues. They're his judgment. Judgments from God. And then he tells Pharaoh five things in this little talk here. He tells him three purposes of the plagues. I want you to know Yahweh, Israel's God. I want you to know who he is and that he's incomparable. I want you to know my power and I want my name and my character to be known throughout all the nations everywhere. Egypt would not be able to hide the humiliation of the judgment of God from all the nations around them. Then number two, he lets Pharaoh know, whatever you have, power you have, Pharaoh, I gave you that. I gave you that for such a time as this, so I would be known. Thirdly, I could have wiped Egypt off the face of the earth like that. I haven't done it because I'm gracious. I'm giving you opportunities to know me and turn to me. Fourthly, he says, okay, let me tell you about the next plague. It's going to be like nothing you've ever seen. It's going to be hail that destroys. Nothing's ever been like it before. And then fifthly, he mercifully tells Pharaoh and his people how they can avoid it, how they can be safe. He says, you can be spared. Get in your houses. Get out of the fields. And I love it that, did you notice some Egyptians are beginning to maybe change their loyalty from Pharaoh to the God of the Hebrews? Because they run home, get their livestock, and take shelter. I think these were probably some Egyptians that left with Israel when the exodus did happen. Some Egyptians left. Why wouldn't they? They've been realizing our gods are powerless. Yahweh is the one with power. He's the one true God. I think some of these people that ran right here and took safety were probably those people. They were rewarded for their faith. You know, I was remembering when I first married my husband, Ted, and was here in Texas. It's been a long time. There was a huge, violent hailstorm, mostly I think it struck on the east side worse. Ted and I were in a movie here on the west side. In the middle of the movie, I can't remember what it was, but it was a really good part. The movie went off, and they basically came out and said, go home, a giant hailstorm is here. We tried to drive down our road, which had a lot of old, huge trees, and it was covered in tree branches. It was the most devastating frightening thing I'd ever seen from hail and wind. And I remember trying to get up into our house and we had this big old home we'd been redoing and my brother lived with us. He was in college and we drove up and it was, of course, no electricity was on anywhere. And I could see little Lee's face looking out, <laughs> looking out the window like, help me, help me. He had to kind of live through it. Windows, our windows were crashed out. We had a big plate glass by our front door. It was totally crashed out. My brother, 
my brother took off running. We had an old uh, cellar out in the ground in the back. He went in there by himself and then got more scared in there and got out <laughs> and came back. <laughs> it looked like a bomb had gone off in the area. You know, what Egypt looked like, looked like a nuclear bomb had exploded in their land. It was much more terrifying than what I saw. Crushing violent hail came down, flashing fire from heaven. What that word literally means is fireballs. Balls of fire that rolled around on the ground during the hail. The thunder would have been like explosions. It beat down the people. It beat down the animals. It pulverized the land. It broke down all the trees. The crops of flax and barley were entirely destroyed, which means it would have been around February at this time. I thought it was interesting to read that the robes of all the, the priests of the false gods were made from flax because it was the softest, best material. No more robes for them. Judgment on the gods of Egypt. The people and the beasts, they ran and they cried until they could run no more, except in Goshen, where God's people lived. No hail at all. So as the lightning was rolling and flashing on the ground, thunder crashing, hail demolishing, guess who sends for Moses and Aaron? Pharaoh. Look at verse 27. Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron, said to them, oh, this time I've sinned. The Lord is right. I and my people are in the wrong. I can hear him saying it like that. Plead with the Lord, for there's been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, as soon as I've gone out of the city, I'll stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease. There will be no more hail, so you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know you do not yet fear the Lord. We could see pretty quickly Pharaoh's confession is a weak one when he says, this time I've sinned. Only this time I've sinned. And we have to wonder how sincere he was because as soon as Moses called out to God to stop the hail and the storm, Pharaoh went right back to the beliefs and the behavior that he had all along. He was really reacting to a terrifying situation. It forced him into a confession so he could get relief from what was happening on the land. I think he would have said anything that he thought Moses wanted to hear. The loss of these crops and people and animals was another economical disaster. And I think the Egyptians that survived, who walked out of their house, looked at their crops, the burned fields of flax and barley, would have said, where were you? Where were you, gods? Where were you? What about the gods of Isis and Seth that, did, that covered agriculture? Where were they? I think the blackened fields of Egypt's crops was a silent testimony to the impotence 
of the stone and wood deities of Egypt. Here's the sad thing, it could have been avoided. It could have been avoided if their king was not all about the king. Verse 17 tells us Pharaoh wanted to exalt himself, not God, not God's people. So when Pharaoh exalted himself instead of God, all he had left was try to manipulate God. His confession was a manipulation to get what he wanted. And that's what happens when we try to live our lives selfishly. Eventually, we have to become manipulators so we can keep ourselves on the throne. You got to manipulate the situation around us. This was Pharaoh's problem. He'd been living from that throne forever and ever. He didn't want to give it up. Choosing to live selfishly leads to manipulating others for our own desires. I have a, a little two-year-old granddaughter named Alice that I love. I was holding her the other day. Ted came along, also known as Poppy, to Alice. I'm holding Alice. Ted says, oh, puts his arms out for Alice to go to him. She does this. She keeps holding on to me. Ted keeps going like this. She keeps going like that. <laughs> Finally, she says, what's in your pocket, Poppy? <laughs> Poppy says, candy. She says, Poppy, hold me. <laughs> We start manipulating at the age of two. <laughs> and a two-year-old really can't help much to be selfish, but we can. We can choose to stop being selfish. We just have to get off the throne we've made for ourselves. Look what Psalm 25 tells us. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Wow. When we humble ourselves, God himself teaches us how to do life. What a great promise. I love that verse. He will sit on the throne of our hearts, and we will be blessed because of it. Plague eight, locusts covering the land. This time, God's going to explain a new purpose for the plague. Look at 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh. For I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may show these signs of mine among them and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. This time he says, I want to make sure Israel knows about my redemptive power. I want them to know that I alone am Lord. And here is why. They need to be pretty confident in that fact in order to walk away and walk into the wilderness with Moses. They need to really know he's the God. He's the redemptive God. He's the one true God. He also would want them not to take any false gods with them. Not to stick some wooden stone little idol in their bag. To recognize they've done nothing. They've been powerless. Trust in me. I love that he says to Moses, I want you to tell your sons. 
I want you to tell your grandsons. And probably he was inferring, I want all of you in Israel to tell your sons and your grandsons about my power. And can't you just sort of imagine them in their tent at night and the little kids once they're in the wilderness and the moms and, <clears throat> excuse me, dads start saying, hey, let's tell you how we got out of Egypt. And their eyes would be like this, the stories. They could tell those children. And God's hope would be those children will tell their children and their grandchildren. And that really did happen because if you read the Psalms, you're going to see a lot of Psalms about Exodus. How did David know all those specific details that many years later? They shared and told that story. God, in this point, wants to make sure Israel trusts in him. Before the plague begins, God again gives Pharaoh a chance to yield to him. And I love that um, Moses and Aaron will have a specific question that they ask him. God says, ask Pharaoh, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? How long? When they explain to Pharaoh, he has to let them go or a plague of locusts will come, his servants decide to give their advice. Probably because they were exhausted from being tortured with insects and frogs, being sick, hungry, thirsty, loss of property, money, crops, possessions, people they knew destroyed. They knew not only was Egypt economically destroyed, spiritually it was. Socially it was, and visibly it was. Didn't look anything like Egypt used to look. So here's what they say. Look at verse 7. Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let them go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Don't you yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Okay, go, serve God. Which ones are to go? Moses said, we'll go with our young and our old, our sons, our daughters, our flocks, our herds, and we must hold a feast to the Lord. Pharaoh said, the Lord be with you, sarcastically. The Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you're asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Pharaoh would have done well to listen to his whining, complaining servants who are actually speaking some wisdom. But knowing that Moses wanted to take the women and children and the animals, Pharaoh needs to have a card up his sleeve. He needs to keep the women and children so that these men will come back. So he says no. And for the first time, he throws Moses and Aaron out of the palace. And when he refuses to listen to the wise counsel of these other people, he brings great disaster to his people. That was his choice. And the locust plague was like nothing they had ever seen. In fact, let's look back at verse 5. We've got some descriptions in chapter 10. 
The locusts will cover the face of the land so no one can even see the land. They shall eat what is left to you after the hail. They shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. They shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. One description. Look at verse 14. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so the land was darkened. They ate all the plants in the land, all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Okay, here's some locust facts. I knew you'd want to know. <laughs> One square mile of a locust swarm could hold between 100 million and 200 million locusts. Yuck. A locust can fly 10 to 12 miles an hour for up to 20 hours without stopping. Just incredible. So what the previous plague didn't destroy, the locust destroyed. The wheat, the spelt, the fruit, all other vegetation was devoured. Locusts darkened the whole land and inside the homes of the Egyptians. Once again, Pharaoh hurries off to talk to Moses and Aaron. He confesses his sin again and asks Moses, remove this plague of death from us. But again, he only wanted relief. He still wanted to be a God. Moses pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord sent a west wind that carried every locust into the Red Sea, and the Bible tells us not one locust was left. Proof of a miracle. Because Pharaoh was not humble, didn't listen to God, didn't listen to Moses, didn't listen to his servants. Egypt became a barren wasteland. And I thought, you know, what a great visual for us to remember when we ignore the counsel of God. When we ignore the counsel of godly people. Choosing to ignore wisdom brings barrenness in our lives as well. There's no fruit, there's no growth, there's no life that anyone sees. Refusing guidance is sort of like going somewhere we've never been without a map. We get lost, we have accidents, we damage other people, um, we feel defeated, and guess who gets hurt alongside our poor choices? Everybody that's in the car with us. People around us, when we ignore wisdom, they suffer along with us. Look what Proverbs 15 says. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Okay, the ninth plague, darkness over the land. How many of you have been in Carlsbad Cavern? Okay, remember when they say, turn all the lights off, what that felt like? 
You couldn't see this far in front of your face? You have a feel for what the darkness was like in Egypt. The Bible tells us it was so dark you could feel it. I think you could feel it emotionally, but possibly also literally, because there may have been a sandstorm connected to it. When you translate that verse, it has the idea of a storm with it. Remember, no vegetation on the land. God may have whipped up the winds to pull up those sands and add to the darkness and the torment that these people felt. It struck at the heart of the great sun god Ra that the Egyptians loved. They used to sing, Hail to thee, beautiful Ra of every day. You have fashioned your body. Under your guidance are millions of ways. Your radiance is like the radiance of heaven, an old hymn to the sun god who is helpless and powerless and did nothing. This is the third plague where there was no warning that it was coming. Look at verse 21 in chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land to be felt. So Moses did that and there was pitch dark in all the land of Egypt for three days. They didn't see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. There was no cooking, no playing, no working, no days of relief for three days, nothing. They were paralyzed. They were defeated. And I love the obvious symbolism here. While the arrogant, godless Egyptians sat paralyzed and defeated in the darkness, there was light in the land of God's people. The children of God live in the light. Look at 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Pharaoh came up with his fourth manipulative compromise. Okay, let people go, but not your animals. And he knew Israel could not live without the animals and that they would come back. What Pharaoh couldn't understand was that partial obedience to God was disobedience. Moses was firm. He said, no hoof will be left behind. And we see the great anger of Pharaoh and infuriated him that Moses refused to go without the animals. He threatened to kill him. Look at verse 28 and 29. Pharaoh said to Moses, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. When Pharaoh was ruled by his anger, he chose not to look at the face of Moses. I think his anger was ever with him. But looking at Moses' face reminded him he was powerless. Reminded him he had lost and that God's power was greater. But instead of admitting that, he just kept living in anger. Another lesson for us, anger will always keep us in the dark. Also paralyzed also defeated, we have to hand our anger over to God. There are blessings that come with that. Look at James 1. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It leaves us paralyzed. 
Okay, I'm done. We looked at the bad choices Pharaoh made in the midst of meeting the one true God. And even though we know the one true God, we have to guard ourselves against some of these same kinds of choices that leave us feeling defeated and barren and paralyzed. So each day is a new day. We get to say, I'm going to live life God's way today with God's help. I'm going to set aside self. And to do that, we have to believe two things. God is great and God is good. We can choose to believe he is who he says he is or we can choose to live life apart from him and be plagued throughout our life. Look at this last verse in Exodus. This is another way God describes himself to the children of Israel once they are in, um, once they've left Egypt and are in the wilderness. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the reality. This is the God that loves us. This is the God that wants us plagued no more. He is great. He is good. And guess what? When we do life with him at our side, life is great. And life is good. Let me pray. Lord, you are great. You are good. We give you all praise today because of that. Thank you for this time. In Christ's name, amen.